Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. passage today is a continuation from our study in James, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. For three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Please be seated. Thank you, Mike. We are in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. It is the last paragraph that we are addressing in the book of James. The dominant idea I trust you pick up is that of prayer. Let them pray. What word of encouragement can we offer to a church that is displaced and in a hostile context? Remember the placement of this church to whom James writes. Is there any action called by Pastor James to this banished and battered church? Is it enough to simply say, I'll pray for you? Does our praying have any effectual consequence? Does prayer matter? Or are the words we pray empty and devoid of any real power? This passage would tell us that prayer is powerful and it does indeed matter. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for all that has transpired already as a gathered church. Dear Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come needing your help this morning. We are weak in every way. We are tired of the divisive chatter of people assuming to know something about nothing. We are tired of the trajectory of our decaying flesh, and sometimes we are simply tired of life itself. Yet the songs sung this morning take us from a public declaration saying that you indeed are able. Through Lord, we need you. And we will end this morning celebrating the Lord's table, singing it is indeed well with our souls. And this is true because you are in control, and Jesus Christ is indeed enough. We gather this morning to hear the voice of the Spirit through the text, to see Jesus in the text, and to worship the Father because of the text. We now wait on you to do a work in our hearts, a work that only you can do. Thus, with patient endurance and weight-bearing hope, we look for Jesus to return and thoroughly straighten all that is crooked. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. As we consider this text, I'm wanting always to put it inside of its larger context. And if you'll remember as to where we have been, 
In James chapter 1, James gives us an introduction. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing that it is the trying of your faith that works patience. God in the midst of life is testing us. He's tempting us so that we as his people would indeed trust in him. And the older we get, the more we realize that the one thing we can and must indeed do is trust in him. James then continues by saying, if any of you lack wisdom, if this somehow seems foreign or empty, let him ask of God. And we come to a God who is indeed generous and liberal with his response. We ended chapter 1 in verses 26 and 27. In verses 26 and 27, James gives us some of the problems that existed in that church. Control your tongue, care for one another, and keep yourself clean from your world. Make sure that you don't unknowingly adopt the worldview that is out there. Be careful to guard yourself. Then in the following chapters, chapter 2, James begins to talk about caring for your neighbor. What does that look like in real time? Well, treating people with impartiality. Because the gospel is indeed impartial. Then in chapter 3, he talks about controlling your tongue. Let there not be many teachers. Why? Because words matter. And it's difficult to control your tongue. And then in chapter 4, he says, keep yourself clean from this world. He says to us, if you are a friend of the world, you are an enemy of God. That's pretty black and white, isn't it? He talks about rich people who have adopted the worldview concerning money and control and power and greed, and it's hurting the church. And he saw that. And then we have this opening statement in chapter 1 with this concluding statement in chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Above all else, no matter what is going on, pray. And we do this as community. And I trust that you pick that up as we've looked at the book of James. James says in the concluding remarks, call for the elders of the church. It is about the gathered church. We are a family of families. It's not simply us flying solo and simply, as it were, sucking it up and doing it on our own. It's us together as a family of families, confessing our sins when necessary, coming together and asking for prayer. There are so many prayer needs within our fellowship. And why? Because there are so many people. We live in a broken world. We live where there is still sin operating. And thus, James calls the church to pray. And I find it interesting that this is indeed his last word. Pray. Pray for one another. So much of what James writes is in this context of a displaced church in a hostile situation and circumstance, and he calls them to pray. Notice for a moment all that James says concerning prayer in the letter itself. In chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, notice what James says. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith. And remember how this particular letter ends. The prayer of faith. Asking and praying are synonyms. And then in chapter 5, notice the repetition of the word prayer. So we have this cluster at the front end. In fact, going back to chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, 
It says you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And you do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. And then it says you ask and you do not receive. Well, why? Because you ask wrongly. And do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then he says to the church, you adulterous people. And then we come to chapter 5, verses 13, 14, 17, and 18. And James says, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed. Verse 18. Then he prayed. So the emphasis of his concluding remarks is on prayer. We as a people are bound together in the gospel, and we pray for one another. Prayer is not our last answer. It is our first response. We pray. We pray. When you look at this particular text, there are a couple of ideas that are challenging, and we will hope to seek to answer those two ideas as we study this text. First, there is this thought of the prayer of faith. What does that mean? What does that look like? And the second one is that the prayers of a righteous person availing much. I remember when I was in my 20s attending Bible school, we would read this idea that it was the prayer of faith that received answers to the praying. And I don't know if you've encountered this idea. So when I prayed, I was always asking myself, am I praying in faith or am I praying in non-faith? Are you, are you listening to what I'm saying? Am I praying the prayer of faith? Because it appears as if in James chapter 5 and James chapter 1 that we ask in faith and we say the prayer of faith. And what is the difference between that and what I am normally doing? Am I praying in faith? And I remember as a, a Bible college student always wondering if I was indeed praying in faith because it appears as if from James 5 that if I were praying in faith, I would get the answer that I was asking for. We also have this idea of Elijah and the thought of Elijah and the statement made in the text is that the prayers of a righteous person avails much. So I was always asking myself the question, am I righteous? Because if I were righteous, praying a prayer of faith, I would get what I was asking for. But most of the time, what I found is that God answered me with a no. Because I prayed a lot, but I didn't seem to be getting the answers that I was seeking. So what exactly is meant by this whole idea of the prayer of faith and how is that different than what we normally do? And then what is meant by the righteous person praying and that the prayers of a righteous person avails much? And we'll seek to answer that idea throughout this text. One of the challenges to prayer is why is God going to answer your prayer? Why is God going to answer your prayer? I make a significant assumption insofar that you are praying. So why would God answer your prayer? Is it because you are praying in faith? Is it because you are righteous? 
And if God is not answering your prayer, is it because you are not praying in faith? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Or is it because you are not righteous? That there is somewhere in your life disobedience, and because of that unknown, hidden sin, God is not answering your prayer. So how do we go about answering those questions, those challenges that come about because of that and perhaps some prevailing thought? Is it because of your faith and because of your righteousness that God is answering your prayers? Or is it something else? And I would suggest to you that it is indeed something or someone else as to why God answers your prayer. When I look at this paragraph, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, it has three primary ideas. The first is a word to the weakened, and the weakened are described in four ways. It speaks of the suffering, it speaks of the sinful, it speaks of the cheerful, and it speaks of the sick. But you have this word to the weakened, and then in verses 19 and 20, a word to the wanderer, the one who has wandered from the truth in verses 19 and 20. But I'm going to begin with a word to the weakened. It has two moving parts within those several verses. The first is the invitation, and the second is the illustration. And the illustration that it uses is that of Elijah. Now, as it relates to the invitation, the invitation has three moving parts. The first part is the audience addressed. Notice in verse 13, it says, Is any among you suffering? Now, what is the assumption that we would make concerning the audience? Are there those within that gathering who are suffering? And the answer is yes. We must remember that it is a displaced church in a hostile context. So there are those who are suffering. They're suffering physically. They're suffering emotionally. They're suffering spiritually. And James says to those people that they should pray. It's not overly complicated, is it? See, what James will tell us in chapter 1, he says, trust in God. And then in chapter 5, he says, pray to God. And why? Because trusting and praying are really the same thing. Do you trust God? Then pray. And when you pray, you are trusting him. So the first group addressed in the audience are those who suffer. He then says, is anyone cheerful? And he says, if you are cheerful, let them sing praise. And I would say to us today, is there anyone out there that is cheerful, free from suffering? And we would like to say, well, yeah, you know what? I really don't have it bad. I might be slightly inconvenienced, but overall, things are pretty good. They're pretty good. So he addresses the suffering, and he addresses the cheerful. And what I find interesting, he speaks to the sick, and he says to the sick, well, obviously let them pray, let them give thanks. But he says to the sick, let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing them with oil. So you have those within the church who are indeed sick. And I would say to us as a fellowship, is anyone here not doing well? Not only are you suffering, but you are equally sick. You are declining in health. If you and I could be transparent, if we could be vulnerable, we would find that many within our own fellowship are suffering. Many within our fellowship are sick. 
They're battling with a decaying physical body, and that battle is chronic and it's acute. And we need to be praying for them. Some of them invite us in on that prayer request. Others keep it to themselves. James says, and I'll talk about this in just a moment, let those who are sick call for the elders of the church and let us pray over you. But you have this invitation and you have it to the sick, to the cheerful, to the suffering. And then notice how the text reads. It says, if you are sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over them, anointing him, and I'm using them, male and female, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So who are the people making up this audience to whom he writes? Well, you have those who are suffering. You have those who are cheerful right now. Where they are seems pretty good. You have those who are sick. And you have those who are sinful. They have perhaps because of their sinfulness caused their bodies to be sick. Sin has an intrinsic demerit. And some people, because of how they have chosen, behaved, have ruined their bodies and they are sick. That is a possibility, isn't it? And so James says to his audience, those who are suffering, those who are cheerful, those who are sick, those who are sinful, pray. Pray. But notice it's not just the audience addressed, but also the action invited. What is James inviting them to do? Well, notice verse 14. Let that individual call for the elders of the church. I always think it is of interest to know how we have made Christianity a solo thing. We have individualized it to the point where we think there is a healthy expression of the Christian life apart from the local church. But because of the New Testament, I believe the Christian life is to be lived in the context of the local church. We need each other. I need you as much as you need me. And this text, in conclusion, says, let those who are suffering, let those who are cheerful, let those who are sick, call for the elders of the church. You know, as a family of families, we have elders. I am one of those elders, one of those pastors. And this is the gathered church. And there are those who find themselves wanting that prayer, and they invite us in. It says that they call for the elders of the assembly of the church. It goes on to say, and let them pray over him or her. We even ask you and invite you to come forward after the service if you want us to pray over you. And there are people up here waiting and willing and wanting to pray over you. And why? Because you trust God. Thus you pray to God. Notice the text. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This is the only place in the New Testament where Christians are specifically tasked with anointing the sick with oil. And why? Well, in that context, oil was a medicinal element. In addition, it spoke of handing them over. And when we anoint with oil, and the elders of this church have done that, 
When we anoint with oil, we are simply saying, God, we trust you to do what you want with what is yours. And when you do it, you are always right. And we are asking that you would heal this person, that you would raise them up. But more importantly than all of that in the horizontal, that their hearts would be strengthened and that they would finish well, trusting in you, looking to you to help them in all these things. So we have this thought of calling for the elders of the church, of anointing with oil, of praying over them. And notice also it speaks of this idea of confessing their sins. Confession is appropriate when necessary. In our sinning, we should always be agreeing with God that what we have done is indeed wrong. But we're looking to him to heal, to raise us up, to forgive our sins. And that is exactly what God indeed does. Confession is appropriate. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. What are the consequences of all this? Well, notice verse 16, 15 and 16. Therefore, confess your sins one to another. The answer that is sought. We have the audience addressed, the suffering, the cheerful, the sick, and the sinful. We have the action invited. Let them call for the elders of the church. The elders will anoint them with oil, and they will pray over them. And what is the answer that we seek? Well, we seek that God would indeed save them, that he would heal them, and that he would forgive them when and if necessary. This is the answer that we seek. And then notice the illustration. We have this invitation. He calls us to pray. He invites us in. He wants us to be a family of families where we are praying one for another, regardless of where we find ourselves, suffering, cheerful, sick, sinful. Let us come together And let us pray one for another. And then he uses this example or illustration of Elijah in verses 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like our own. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. The story of Elijah is an interesting story. It is found in 1 Kings chapters 16, 17, and 18. The reason that Elijah is used as an example is not that he was an extraordinary man. I always find it interesting that the scriptures do indeed highlight certain things about individuals, but there are a lot of things that are left unsaid or that we don't focus on. The reason that Elijah is used as an example is not that he was an extraordinary man. James stresses that he was a man with a nature just like ours. He was just like us. It is his ordinariness that is in view. Elijah's praying is used as an example, not because it produced miracle-like effects, but because it gives us one of the clearest of all illustrations of what it means for anyone to pray with faith. It is believing God's revealed word. When I was a much younger man, decades ago, I remember thinking that if you prayed, your will be done, by saying your will be done, you are, you are conceding and you are not praying in faith because you're saying, I'll settle for anything less than what I asked for. 
So if I'm praying, God, heal this bone, I ask in faith, and, and I don't conclude with in Jesus' name, because if I conclude in Jesus' name, I'm somehow conceding a non-answer, a non-compliance with my request of healing the bone. But I'm telling you that when we do pray, we are always submitting ourselves under the will of God. We always know what God can do, but we're never quite sure of what God will do. God can do whatever he wants with what is his, and when he does it, he is always right. Elijah prayed in accordance with God's will. God told Elijah what he would do, and that's what Elijah prayed. It is this idea of aligning with God's word that James stresses. You have not because you ask not, and when you do ask, you don't receive because you've asked amiss. I don't know if you are aware of prayers that you've prayed that are not right with God. Prayers, you know, like they're not in alliance with God's word. You're simply wanting something to consume it upon yourself. Are you with me on that? I know I've prayed a lot of self-centered prayers. And I am very, very thankful that God has often not answered my prayer. We are always praying in submission to the will of God. And that is praying in faith. Remember, James says, trust in God. Now, transfer that trust into praying to God. I trust God when I pray to God. The intent of that illustration in verses 17 and 18 isn't to accent how holy or above us Elijah might have been, but his identification with us. He was just like you and me. He prayed in faith. He prayed trusting in God. God through Elijah did indeed mighty things, and God through us can do mighty things. Our continued problem is believing the righteousness noted in this passage is something different than what we have. Thus, we are either seeking to attain it or looking for someone who might have it. I remind you of my early years. I had to figure out what praying in faith meant, and I had to figure out who the righteous person was. And I had to make sure that when I prayed, I prayed in faith, believing that what I asked for, I would receive, which almost sounds like the name it, claim it idea, doesn't it? But we've couched it and clothed it in evangelical language. And then I had to figure out if I was living an obedient, righteous life so that God would indeed answer my prayer. But is that what this text is teaching us? So James begins with a word to the weakened. He says to the sick, to the suffering, to the cheerful, to the sinful, pray. Call for the elders of the church. Confess your sins one to another. Realize the importance of praying within the family of families. We come together as the people of God and we pray. We pray. Now notice verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The description of the wanderer is found in verse 19. The person who is wandering has left the truth. It's not simply a person with whom we disagree theologically or politically or financially. This is something far more severe. I'm going to read from 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. It's just a few pages to my right. 
in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, listen to what the Apostle John says. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And then notice how James describes these individuals. They went out from us. They have wandered from the truth. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. He says, then they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. How does James identify these antichrists? They were once in the church, but they have left the church. They were once gathering, but now they are displaced and scattering. They are no longer identifying with the local church, with the gathered church. James says, those are the ones who have wandered from the truth. It's not that we simply disagree over some minutia of theology or biblical interpretation. They have wandered from the truth. They have stopped believing and have left the gathering. And James says of those people, here is his word to the wanderer. Notice his solution. Bring them back. How simple is that? Bring them back. And I always find it interesting when you wrestle with the question, well, are they or are they not saved? That's not a question that the New Testament necessarily answers. It says, regardless of who the person is, they need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the gospel. And if they respond positively to the gospel, they will be coming back. And notice it says that whoever, whoever brings a sinner from his wandering, whoever goes after them shares with them the gospel. And when the wanderer responds properly to the gospel, that person will be saved from death. And that person will have the multitude of their sins covered. So James addresses two kinds of people. He addresses those who are weakened. They're suffering. Some are cheerful. Some are sick and some are sinful. And James says, hey, let them call for the elders of the church. Let us as a family of families gather together and pray for people. Take the prayer list that is carefully crafted every week and go over that prayer list, asking that God would indeed answer the prayers of these people. We do that at the end of every service. We see those who are asking of us prayer. We pray. We know what God can do. We're not always sure what God will do. But we are trusting him regardless. Whether we suffer, whether we are cheerful, whether we are sick, or whether we are sinful, we are trusting him. What is the word to the wanderer? Folks, go after them. Turn them back. Bring them back. Share with them the gospel. Why? Because it is imperative that we understand these things. What do we do with all this? Well, one of our tendencies is to make prayer about us, our needs and our desires, rather than about Jesus, his will, and what he wants. I mentioned how in my early years I would look at the prayer of faith and I would look at this idea of righteousness and I would think to myself, this is something that I have to do. I have to figure out when I am praying in faith. I have to figure out when I am aligned in such a way that I am righteous and obedient. 
and I made my answers to prayer and praying on me. And if I'm not hearing God respond in the way that I want, then something must be wrong here. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Not that you agree, but do you hear what I am saying? One of the amazing things that I have found in praying for over 40 years is that God often answers with no. I mean, if I said, could I get a witness, I mean, I'm sure I would hear you comply. It might not be a hard no, but it is a no. At least he's choosing not to answer the prayers I've prayed on my timeline. What are we to do when the answer appears to be no? James calls us to lean into God even when the situation never changes. I saw this on Easter Sunday when we examined John 13 and 14. Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, now believe in me. He gave to his people hope, even though he was still going to die, Judas would still betray him, Peter would still deny him. Jesus concludes that upper room discourse with, In this world you will have tribulation. No matter how hard you pray, you are going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I, Jesus, has overcome. We might ask, who is this righteous one? The people of God are indeed the righteous ones because of an imputed righteousness from God to us. Let me suggest to you that when you pray, and I have found this to be true in my own life, and I base it upon the text of Scripture. But let me suggest to you that Jesus is the righteous one, and because he is righteous, he imputes to us that righteousness, thus we are righteous. Let me end with a word to the weary. Have you prayed and prayed and prayed, and it seemed as if God was turning a deaf ear to your plea? He wasn't answering your prayers in the way you wanted. And you began wondering why. Well, James 1 says, trust in him. You might not get the answer you want, but God's will is being played out perfectly in your life. So let me offer you a word to the weary. The New Testament uses a word for this weariness. It occurs six times in the New Testament it's the word to faint or to fail. In Luke chapter 18, verse 1, because of time, I'll only cite a reference, one or two. But in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, it says, And he told them a parable to the effect that you ought always to pray and not lose heart. Don't grow weary in praying. Well, why? Because to pray to him is to trust in him. Don't stop trusting me. And your trust in him shows itself in your praying to him. The Hebrew word for this weariness means to gasp, to be exhausted. Psalm 6, verse 6 says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Psalm 69, verse 3, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Maybe you're not old enough to know what he means. But there have been seasons in your life when you have prayed yourself dry. You've got nothing left. The issues that you are confronting are chronic and acute. 
and you are simply exhausted. And it seems as if God is not working, God is not acting. But remember what Matthew eleven twenty eight eighteen 18 through 20 says. It says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How do we find release from the weariness that we encounter in the horizontal? Or as we labor in prayer, it appears as if the answer is no. In your prayer life, do you find rest? Jesus isn't simply the object to whom we pray, but through whom we pray. There is a reason why we say, in Jesus' name. Let me offer you three thoughts concerning this word to the weary. First of all, Jesus Christ is our mediator. Jesus Christ is the one who stands between us and God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. It is the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 reads, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Do you know that when you pray, you have someone mediating in your behalf? Do you recognize that when you pray, Jesus Christ is the one through whom those prayers are filtered? See, it's not about you and me. It's about him. We are his people. But because of him, we can approach a throne of grace and find help in our time of need because of Jesus, not because of some great faith that you have, not because you've somehow aligned your life with all the imperatives of the New Testament. No, it's because of him that the Father hears your prayer. Jesus Christ is your mediator. But not only is Jesus Christ your mediator, he is your high priest. Not only does Jesus Christ stand between you and the Father, but he represents you before the Father. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Hebrews 3, 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Not only does Jesus mediate in our behalf, he stands between us and God, but he represents us before God. That's crazy. So when I pray, I can pray with confidence, not because of my faith, not because of my righteousness, but because of him. God's ear is open. His arms are wide. And the final thing concerning a word of the weary is that Jesus Christ, as well as the Holy Spirit, are our advocate and intercessor. We don't have time to point out how in the upper room discourse, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, another advocate. And listen to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a helper with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Who is this righteous one who pleads in our behalf? Jesus. This entire idea of intercession, it's used three times in the New Testament. Once in Romans 8, 27, it says, And he searches the heart, knowing what is the mind of the Spirit, because he 
makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. See, God is giving you what he wants. And what he gives you is good and right, as painful and as problematic as it might be in that moment. Romans 8.34, Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25, He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Is that thing that you are bearing beating you down? Are you praying and it doesn't seem as if God has opened his ear or his arms? Friend, you have a mediator. You have a high priest. You have an advocate and an intercessor. And it is Jesus Christ himself and the Holy Spirit. Who else do we need? It's not your faith. It's not your righteousness. It's his. He has opened wide the gate. Let us embrace it. What happens? We find rest. It doesn't mean the problem is solved. It doesn't mean it goes away. It doesn't mean it's not hard and difficult. But it does mean we know that God does indeed care. And Jesus Christ is right now mediating in your behalf. He is your high priest. He stands between you and the Father. He represents you before the Father. And Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, speak to God in your behalf. Wow. I have prayed for years over certain things, and they have never gone away or according to my liking. But I can trust him, and because of that, I can pray to him. Let me offer you six closing thoughts. When you find yourself displaced in a hostile context, when things simply don't seem to be going the way you want them to, pray. When you find yourself sick, pray. When you find yourself as a sinner wandering from God, pray. Why? Because God hears your prayer. Jesus Christ is mediating in your behalf. He's representing you before the Father. He is advocating, interceding for you. See, prayer is not our last resource, but our first response. We pray. Do not ever believe that your thoughts and prayers are not enough. They were enough for Daniel, for Hagar, for Paul, for Peter, for James, and for Jesus. Pray. Your prayer life has a necessary connection to the local church. You are always in need to be connected to a real and localized church under the oversight of praying pastors and in the communion of the saints. Learn to be relational with your church family. Share your prayer needs because we are here one for another. If you know of someone who has stopped believing in Jesus and have stopped coming to the gathering, start praying for them. Pray. Why? Prayer is you saying, God, I trust. I trust in you. When you grow weary, when you are overwhelmed by your moment, 
And as you pray, remember that Jesus Christ is mediating in your behalf before the Father. Jesus Christ, as your high priest, is representing you. And Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, is speaking in your behalf. That prayer you pray that doesn't seem to make any sense, Jesus and the Spirit are making it right before the Father. And then finally, let us remember that the pastors and elders of a local church are to do one thing, and that is to pray and the Word. Let this place be a place of prayer. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Our Father, we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus. This idea is more than a formula, but a reality. He is our identity before you. We know you see us in him, and we come to you through him. In his absence, we truly have nothing. We know that he is our mediator and our high priest. We know that with the Holy Spirit, they are advocating and interceding in our behalf. They are praying for us right now. They are representing us before you right now. This idea isn't something that is to cause us confusion, but to give us comfort. We are overwhelmed. We are tired. We are in many ways coming to the end of ourselves. And you have invited us to pray. We know that our prayer life does not depend on us, but sits squarely on them. Prayer isn't something that we are to try harder to do better. Prayer is the weary and heavy laden coming to you for rest. A throne marked by grace where we do find help in our time of need. And right now, Father, I think of many people passing through my mind who have asked for prayer. They're weary. They are heavy laden. And I'm asking that you in this moment would give them rest. That there would be answers to their questions, solutions to their problems. In all of it, Father, may they trust you. Our effectiveness in praying isn't because we exhaust ourselves in it, but rather in coming exhausted, we collapse in your loving arms and find our healing and rest. Father, we trust in you. Thus we pray to you. In Jesus' name, amen.